All right, well, why don't we get, uh, why don't we get started? Let me, uh, well, let me start by just saying, how y'all doing? How's everybody doing? Doing good? Did everybody get to go to dinner? Mexican lasagna, chipotle rice, refried beans. That's all been cooking for the last two days in my house, so I was looking forward to, <laughs> to tonight's dinner. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a quiz together. Father, thank you so much for tonight, another night. Um, Father, just for the grace of community and for fellowship, um, just know I was so encouraged at the conversation that happened around the table that I was sitting at and just really enjoy spending time with other people whom you've created. Um, thank you for calling us into a family. Thank you for calling us to this place and for making us a part of Grace Church. Father, I'm so grateful for this family and, and grateful for this time to spend together now. And, and just as I was um, looking over notes and, and looking over the scriptures this afternoon and seeing how you are, are working, how you have been working and are working throughout history, God, my heart is so, so much more settled to see your control and your design and the story that you are telling. So thank you. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for opening our eyes to see that you are and that you are for us. Father, we love you so much. And um, would you just use um, my uh, humble efforts now to glorify you tonight and to serve these people well, that they would see you and that their hearts would be settled in the joy of who you are as well at the end of our time together here this evening. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What is biblical theology? What is our definition for biblical theology? Andrea, without looking at notes. Oh, man. Yeah, this is a quiz. <laughs> this is not an open book quiz. I want to see, I want to see how well we can do. Nope. Yes. That. Boom. That leads to a unified story that leads to Jesus. So in, if that's all you have, that is perfect. If you want to add just a little bit to it, it is the discipline that helps us experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. But a unified story that leads to Jesus is really quite fine for a definition for biblical theology. Uh, so the last couple weeks, we've talked about two different major toolboxes that we have uh, to pull things from in our attempts to do biblical theology in God's word. So what were those two toolboxes? Can anybody remember? No. Yes. So exegetical toolbox. Think of the definition of biblical theology and it'll help. It starts with an S. Boom. Storyline. And then under each of those, we had some tools that we could use that we can pull out of those toolboxes. Can anybody think of any of the tools? And I'll take under 
either one of those. We can go back and forth, plumb the depths of your minds to see. Yes, and that's actually the first one. Way to go, Jill. <laughs> nope. Themes. It's actually number two, so we're doing really well as a class tonight. Yes. And discontinuity. can read that right what's that uh no but that's that is a good exegetical practice the context is king so absolutely because you looked okay you can look now i'm sorry Uh oh. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Typology. Okay, what else? Promise fulfillment. All right, exegetical tools. These are a little bit, kind of a little bit tougher. Yes, or as. As D.A. Carson would say, Jean, Jean, the Don. Yes. Grammatical, historical. All right, so now, you know, for extra points for your grades at the end of the, at the end of the semester, what is the grammatical historical method? I mean, just what would, you be, what would be a way to explain that? What does that even mean? We're doing exegesis. What's exegesis? Not quite. Yeah, so the gr that's, the gr that's the grammatical part. So the grammatical historical method, that's the, the grammar part is, yep, pulling part by part, looking at every word, every phrase, is important. And then historical would just be what? It's not a trick question. Yeah, yeah. Where's just what, if it says apostle, if it says he went to Tarshish, like, well, where was Tarshish? And what was it? And what was it like in that culture, in that context? And what was going on at the time? And who was the ruler? And what was the government? And all of those kinds of historical things that help us understand the text. Exegesis, right? Remember, ek from the Greek is out of, so it's drawing meaning from the text. Eisegesis, eis is Greek for into. That's putting meaning into the text. We don't want to do eisegesis. We don't want to shove our meaning into the text. We want to draw the meaning out of the text. That's all that exegesis is, is just a $1 word that means to draw the meaning out. So that's a grammatical historical method. What's genre? Yeah, so another way we could say that that might be less French and more English is literary form, 
would be, that might be an easier way to remember that. Just what's the literary form? Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it apocalyptic? Is it an epistle, a letter? Just those different kinds of literary forms in the Bible. And they all have their own rules in the way that they operate, right? And so we want to be able to know those. And so those two toolboxes work together because exegesis, remember, that's like when our head is down in the text. And the storyline is when I'm looking forwards and backwards. So I can study a little bit right here where I'm at, wherever the kind of the story is flowing. And then I look up and I don't want to lose my spot at where I'm at in the overall story of the Bible. So the four movements of God's story, there's different ways that we can talk about like kind of just the big story, the redemptive historical story of God's word, right? And so the four movements, Eric. <laughs> What are the four movements of the story? A way that we can say that. Fall. There you go. Rescue and redemption can be the same, kind of interchangeable, and then restoration or new creation. What is our six-word sentence that tells us the entire story of the Bible in six words? Eric! <laughs> yes! <laughs> And last week, so this is, this is going to get us towards, um, now I'm going to do that so you don't watch movies the whole time where I'm talking this, this week. Um, this is going to be our segue into tonight's teaching. What, if, does anybody remember the eight-word sentence that we saw from Graham Goldsworthy um, to, to talk about the entire story of the Bible? Anybody remember that? God's people in God's place under God's rule. The story of the whole Bible in eight words. Now, goals where the approach is slightly different than the other two ways that we've looked at the story of the Bible. The slight difference being that he is getting at a particular theme or storyline that he sees throughout the Bible, right? And that storyline is what? That's around it, but not quite what I'm looking for. What do you think his storyline is if it's God's people in God's place under God's rule? Kingdom. The kingdom. So he's, he's proposing that the storyline that one of the storylines, at least, that goes through the entirety of the scripture is kingdom. And his sentence, as you can now see, probably makes sense to describe that. Because if you're describing rule, you need that rule to happen over a people, someone who's being ruled, and they need to be ruled somewhere, right? So it just, it makes sense when you think about it that way. God's people and God's place under God's rule, the storyline of the kingdom of God. And so now we want to with a few other scholars as guides. So last week I, t I talked to you, I, or I lifted up the book uh, Kingdom Through Covenant uh, by Steve Wellam and Peter Gentry. Um, that's an excellent, excellent book. And so there, some of the outlines of this are, are pieces from Goldsworthy and pieces from Gentry and from Wellam. And so if you wanted to, as you saw last week, that book could kill you if it hit you on the head, falling from a couple stories. And so if you really want to get much deeper, uh, that'd be an excellent resource to, to get your hands on. 
And their argument in that book is pretty straightforward that from the beginning of the story to the very end, God establishes his kingdom through covenants. And these covenants give a structure to the story of the Bible, a, a framework, if you will, almost like a table of contents, like you could think of it that way. Like I'm, I'm looking at the front of the Bible and here's all these different covenants. And now I'm going to see the story unfold through all of these covenants, God establishing his kingdom. So turn in your Bibles and I hope you'll be bringing your Bibles to class. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1.1. A lot of you could probably quote Genesis 1.1, but I want you to have this text. And we're going to be, we're going to have a lot of scripture tonight. Genesis 1, because I want you to see in the text, I want you to see this for yourselves. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is the creator of the universe, which means in that sense, he is also its ruler right from the very beginning, which I think kind of makes sense, right? Because the creator has the right to do what he wants with his creation. He rules over it. There's an authority invested in him as its designer and author, which is something that our society and culture is really struggling with right now, as many cultures have, right? I want to be the ruler. I want to be the author. I want to, defi- I want to be the authority over me as a created being and over creation. I don't want there to be an outside authority that I answer to. We see in the beginning in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where God creates Adam and Eve in his image, and then in 1, 28, so here's he's starting to exert his authority and his rule. He blesses them and then commands them, gives stipulations that they have to follow. God blessed them, and God said to them, And these are imperatives, so they're commands. God's commanding. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. So God's rule is a generous and authorizing rule, and he rules by setting the trajectory of Adam and Eve's life. He makes them, so many theologians describe Adam and Eve, and they describe us as vice regents. Um, kind of an ancient Near Eastern ideas of like a, you've heard this word like viceroy, right? Like they are vice regents of God's creation. He is delegating authority and responsibility to humanity to rule over this creation and to do that by spreading image bearers and vice regents all over the earth, right? Be fruitful and multiply. I've made you in my image, and now I'm going to... This is what this is what happened in the ancient Near East, right? Like, this is what gods would do. You, you would set images of gods in places, in cities, and in that way they were exerting their presence and their authority. Of course, they were, they were dead gods. They didn't have actual eyes or mouths or, or ears that could hear anything. But God sets live image bearers to reflect his image in all of the earth and therefore spread that authority over all of creation. Now, nowhere nowhere in the first few chapters of Genesis do we see the explicit language of covenant, but we do see it, I think, implicitly. 
before we talk about that, we should probably define what a covenant is. So if, if you were to guess at what a covenant is, and all my first semester students are uh, exempted from answering currently, maybe we'll open it up to you, but what would you guess a covenant is? It's not a word we use a whole lot anymore, is it? I remember when I moved to Florida and we bought a house and we were part of a housing uh, association. There was a covenant that we had to sign and there were stipulations in the covenant. An agreement or a contract. An agreement or a contract. And what do you need for an agreement or a contract? Two parties. You need conditions and rules and stipulations. And there's things, good things that happen if you follow those rules. And what happens if you don't follow those rules? There's consequences of some sort, usually that aren't very nice or kind or fun. And it's the same way in the scriptures, in the covenant that God makes between himself and his people, two parties. And there's usually stipulations, and then there's blessings for when you follow that, and curses for when you don't. And it is usually sealed with some kind of oath or ceremony. Paul Williamson, in the New Dictionary of Bible Theology, Biblical Theology, says... A covenant is a solemn commitment, guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties, sealed with an oath. This covenantal nature of the relationship between God and Adam and Eve becomes especially evident when we move to, now move to Genesis 2, verse 15. Yahweh God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and watch over it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree. So what did we just see there? In Goldsworthy's sentence. Well, I think we see kind of covenant, but we also see it already a, the theme of kingdom, right? God's rule, God's people, and God's place. He took a man and put him in a garden to work over and watch that, and then he's certainly going to say spread that throughout the entire earth, and then he commands the man. So he's ruling. You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. And then he says in verse 17, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So there's Goldsworthy's system for understanding kingdom is storyline and how the storyline is framed by a covenant between God and man. God provides Adam with a list of duties and commitments, and he promises blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. And then he binds them by a verbal commitment, the oath. So a covenant is, some people argue that there is not an Adamic covenant. I think that it seems to me there is an Adamic covenant. Um, there are some theologians that believe, uh, kind of not really, but I, I really think that we have a basic framework for covenant here in the very beginnings of kingdom. I think Goldsworthy's argument is compelling. Another way to define covenant would be that it is the constitutionalization of a relationship. It involves the coming together, the congregating of separate parties by a morally binding pact that establishes lines of authority and the boundaries of the group or community. And thus it is through this covenant with humanity that God will bring his kingdom project on the earth about. Of course, it does not last long, does it? Adam and Eve do what in Genesis, Genesis 3? 
They break the covenant. How do they break the covenant? They disobey, and they effectively launch a rebellion in the kingdom. Does their rebellion succeed? Do they get what they want? If, if the covenant agreement and the way the kingdom of God operates is God's rule in God's place over God's people, if you, if you flip that, right, like to, to rebel against that would be to say, I want my rule and I want to establish my kingdom and I'm going to own this place, not God, right? Like a complete rebellion and overthrow of the kingdom. But do they rule in this place over their own people? Have they effectively come out from under God's rule of this place called earth and all that is in it? And Genesis, as the story continues, answers with a resolute no in at least two ways. The first is God brings about consequences for failing to keep the covenant stipulations. The sword remains in God's hands, in, in God's hand, even if his hand is now invisible. And we read at the beginning of the genealogical tables in Genesis 5.1, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. And we note when we look through all of the entries in the genealogical document of Adam, every entry ends with, and he died. If you eat of this, you will die, which I'm going to argue on Sunday in Romans 5, I think is speaking both to a physical and a spiritual death that happens as a result in Adam's life and for all of his progeny throughout humanity. Here, God enacts his curse on humanity as promised. And I think it's an absolute tragic irony that what we see, and this just gets you guys, it gets replicated over and over. And this is why it's so important to know the story of the Bible so that we understand the story of our lives and the people that we're trying to help and reach. It was in grasping for what they wanted that God said was not theirs, that they thought they were going to get more and they lost everything that they had. I'll be able to be like God. That was the lie. I'll be like God. They were naked and unashamed. Yes? Were many of God's covenants called unilateral covenants, covenants that he that was one way by God and there was no requirement by the other party? So what was Adam and Eve's requirement in the covenant agreement? To not eat of the tree. <laughs> that might be too technical. <laughs> well, that's, I would say that that's, it's similar. Contract. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, in our, I think that current contracts are going to be not exactly one-for-one one comparison to biblical covenants. It's just a, I would use that as analogous, but not exact. Yeah, and that's an interesting question, Roger, as far as, I, I think that's a little bit more intriguing, and you're kind of saying a little bit of the same thing. Yeah, like, right. Right. Brian. It, yeah, that, I think that's helpful. And if we go back to Williamson, I think it helps to your question, Roger. A solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. Sealed with an oath. So yeah, biblical covenants are operating a little bit differently than kind of maybe standard covenants or contracts between humans. And you're right, it's later that in the Mosaic Covenant, for example, when we get there, you know, he's reading, Moses is reading the stipulations and all the people say, yes, we will do this. We are, we are, we want to be a part of this Yahweh. And um, Abraham, the same thing by nature of going when he says go and, and by faith it's credited to him. He believes in the promises of God. There's a belief in an, an acting on you're making these promises to me. There's a covenant here. Here's the things that I have to do. So you're right in that sense. And yeah, there's, there's no explicit, obviously in the text anyway, there's no explicit verbal agreement or acceptance from Adam or Eve. Um, God's making a covenant and saying, this is the way that this is going to lay out. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, that's Abrahamic. Yep. So would you say to say that Adam and Eve though were actually experiencing um, kingdom life before the fall? So there's a difference there as well. Because every covenant after that was every 
yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that when we get to the Noahic and see how there's a, there's a restatement of a very similarly the covenant obligations, but with slight changes that I think are probably a call out to the implications of the fall in the way that, in the way that it works out in how, um, in how God, yeah, in how God states the stipulations of the covenant uh, in the Noahic covenant. Great questions. Any other questions or follow up on that? I think that's true. I can't think of a case where it's not, unless I'm not remembering something. Right. Right, right. All right. Um, So we see in the garden, um, fellowship with God. They had eternal life. They're naked and unashamed. There's relationship and wholeness and peace and shalom and all of that is shattered because they disobey. So that's the first way that Genesis shows that it's an absolute no, that they didn't really get out of the kingdom rule of God. And the second part of that is the fact that all humanity remains under God's rule. When we look at the Bible's second major covenant, the Noahic covenant. So let's go to Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. And, and this, I think, is, I think this is an aspect of, so when we kind of layer these different things that we're learning about how we look at the scriptures, this is an aspect of progressive revelation because there's this progressive nature in the covenants that, are, that is happening, that God is responding to what's happening in humanity. And so there's um, like these restatements, and we're also going to see this progression as we go through each of the covenants as they kind of in in that sense build on each other so genesis 9 1 god blessed noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth does that sound familiar and now here's that change i think eric that we didn't hear before the fear and terror of you which seems like maybe that's an implication of the fall will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every cre- So you're ruling. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So there's a progression there. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. So why would a life be required for a life? Why is that? What does the text tell us? This is just a little thought that I, a little side thought I had. Why is it in the blood? Because we're in God's image. 
So why would a life be required for murdering someone who's made in, who's made in God's image? Yeah, exactly. Which I think is a really important distinction. We're attacking the, the very image of God. God takes that seriously. But you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, all the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. This is the word of God. And I just think, just to be simple, I just think it's a remarkable thing to hear God speak and to speak a covenant and to make promises. Um, there, there are some theologians that I haven't thought about this until I was studying this recently that, that think that, you know, this, this bow in the heavens is, there's all these images in, in the Bible of, of God as this warrior God, right? Um, overcomes his enemies. He's Yahweh of heaven's armies. And it's in like the warrior's bow. Like he's, he's placing down this, this bow in the sky as a laying down of his hostility against against his creation as evidenced in a flood. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds like it sounds somewhat reasonable as a potential, some symbolism there. So the Noahic covenant renews the Adamic, though placed in a post-fall context. In this way, Noah is like a new Adam, right? Like, He's coming out of the ark with all of these animals, repopulating the creation that God had. I mean, wh what are the floodwaters? Do you know what floodwaters or like what water usually symbolizes in the scriptures in the ancient Near, Near Eastern context? What's that? Waters usually are judgment. So all the way back to the flood, this is waters are usually this kind of place of swirling and chaos and, and judgment and so that's why water was over the entirety of the earth and he says I'm never going to do that again that's never going to be a sign of my judgment again and so here comes the new Adam with God's rule coming through him over all the earth in this covenant it would mean then that all humanity is subject to God's rule and are accountable to his judgment whether they acknowledge God or not 
Sodom and Gomorrah learn this in Genesis 19. King Abimelech learns it in Genesis 20. Pharaoh learns it in the first half of Exodus. Nebuchadnezzar later, Jesus tells Pilate that his authority comes from above. And so there's this authority that's being exerted over all of humanity. The psalmist summing it up in Psalm 96, say among the nations, Yahweh reigns and he will judge the peoples with equity. Alas, Noah does a little better than Adam. He gets drunk pretty much immediately after coming out of the ark. Some scandalous situation in a tent happens that I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but it doesn't sound good. Then a few chapters later, we find all humanity rebelling once more through what? The Tower of Babel. Hmm. I haven't thought about that before. So this brings us up to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, turn there. Verse 1, which is one of the more important bits in the story of the Bible. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem, the oak of Morah. At, the time that, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. He built an altar to Yahweh there, and he called on the name of Yahweh. And then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. And if you flip over to Genesis 15, in verse 18, we read, On that day... Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And then finally turn to chapter 17, verse 3, where the covenant is explained even a little more fully. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him, As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Does that sound familiar? And will make nations and kings come from you. So kingdoms will come out of you, Abraham. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you, 
you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. And every one of your males must be circumcised. So Abraham will not only beget just children, but Goldsworthy's point here is he's seen kingdom continuing. Kingdom is being established. See it there in verse 6. Nations and kings will come from Abraham. And then we see a sign of the covenant. So this starts to become regular in the covenant as well. And the covenant sign here is circumcision. Abraham also now, I think, continues this idea of being a new Adam. God's covenant with, and this is a point um, from uh, Stephen Wellam that I hadn't actually thought about before. He sees um, an idea of common covenants and special covenants. So God's covenant with Adam and Noah we call common covenants because they, they have this impact on all of humanity directly, explicitly. But beginning with Abraham, we start to get this line of special covenants, covenants that are exclusively given to a particular people, even though they're meant to bless all people, right? So certainly this is to be a blessing to all the nations. But now God is like cordoning off, here's this special people that I am covenanting with to bring my blessing to all of humanity. So we just want to kind of see that that, that seems to be helpful. And, and, and they point out, look at this in the different covenants if we look at them. So in Genesis 1, God blessed them. So these are these common covenants where where God is doing something directly through commands. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 9. And then in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And in Genesis 17, I make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will give to you and your offspring after you all the land of Canaan. So they're, they're noting this idea of there's some commands that happen, which blessings that then follow. And then it moves to these promises that God is going to keep to his people so that the blessings come to all of humanity. God meaning to use the redeemed line of Abraham to fulfill his creation purposes. So common covenants in Wellam's structure command and special covenants give and therefore fulfill. And so seeing like in this progression that these promises start to get fulfilled, there's more this direct Someone said it here tonight, like God is bringing these things about and where, where we keep showing ourselves faithless, God keeps showing himself faithful to the covenant. His purposes aren't going to be thwarted. God will give this as we see start to happen in Exodus. The Israelites are fruitful. They increase rapidly. They multiply and become extremely numerous so that the land is filled with them to be God's special kingdom. So now, any questions so far on that? Okay, so turn to Exodus 19, where we're going to discover the next covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant, which will move into a Davidic covenant in Samuel Kings. 
which are covenants that are starting to now implement the promises that were given to Abraham in a kind of progression in these covenants, like I was talking about earlier, that, that he's making with his people and then bringing about. So this is a little bit of that tool of we start to see promise and fulfillment, I think, in here, God making a promise to Abraham and then using a couple of covenants to say, now here's how we're going to bring about all of the things that I've promised to you. In the covenant structure, God never loses sight of the familiar. This is something that I think is really important. He never loses sight of the familial aspect. So he's creating a kingdom, but it's a family that's operating inside of this kingdom. So there's these kind of multiple layers, if you will. He talks about Israel being corporately seen as his son. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn Son, I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. And after rescuing the people from Egypt, God says in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. So a special people. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So at this point in the story, God's now talking about the next progression in his covenant relationship with his people, the covenant he's giving to all of Israel through Moses. And if we keep reading in the story, right, we get to Exodus 20, where we find another aspect of those covenant stipulations, which we call what? The Ten Commandments, which Israel just simply called the Ten. Right? This is it's the first part of all the covenant stipulations. And if you continue to read in chapters 20 to 23, you'll see all kinds of additional stipulations. And then in chapter 24, we read about the covenant ceremony where it's solemnized and confirmed. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that Yahweh has commanded. So Moses took the blood and splattered it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you concerning all these words. So it's by keeping the covenant and being obedient citizens of God's kingdom, that's what he said back in Exodus 19, right? That they would then be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they were meant to show the world what true human dominion looks like through keeping the Mosaic covenant. So Israel's dominion was supposed to redefine righteousness and justice for a world that had perverted it, like we see very clearly in the evidence in the story of Pharaoh and Egypt. And they would do this not as holy individuals, but as a holy nation and as a holy family. You can see that in particular in Deuteronomy 6.25. So then if we move forward in the story up to Deuteronomy, which, do you know what Deuteronomy means? Why is the book of Deuteronomy called Deuteronomy? Anybody know? Second law. So Septuagint, Deutero, second, and Namas is law. So second law. It's a retelling. Deuteronomy is essentially, when I think of Deuteronomy, what I see is probably five major movements of Moses essentially preaching, preaching the law, 
in the covenant stipulations, which is really interesting because I think Matthew's story and biography of Jesus is also five major movements. And so I think Matthew as a Jew is really trying to hearken back to seeing Moses as this great prophet who speaks these five key sermons. And then he tells the story of Jesus in these five major movements as the coming of he is the greater Moses, which we will see in a moment here in Deuteronomy 18. So if we move into the story up to Deuteronomy, the second law, in this series of sermons, he's once again confirming the covenant as the people are on the cusp of taking possession of the promised land, right? So that was part of the promise. And in chapter 17, we find God making arrangements for how they will appoint a king as he looks forward to see that they will one day desire this and thus makes a provision for how that anointing should be carried out, a king and a kingdom. And note well how the king must intimately know and have possession of the covenant stipulations between God and his people so that the rule of God will be seen through the people of God in the place of God. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, we'll begin in. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For Yahweh has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or the left. And he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Israel. So then we step forward in the story to 2 Samuel 7, which is part of the larger narrative called Samuel Kings, where the next progression in God's covenant with his people is described through the Davidic covenant. So go to 2 Samuel 7, 8. Verse 8, this is what Yahweh of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. He's talking to David here. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Right, so... Goldsworthy's being played out here. If we're believing this God's rule over God's people in God's place. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh declares to you, Yahweh himself will make a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So David and his offspring were to specially represent the rule of God and God's kingdom to the people of God, and he was to represent God to the people. And the kingdom of God was to be made even clearer through this covenant. So David, once again, is a new kind of Adam, a special son of God, representing and reflecting as an image bearer his heavenly father to God's people. And of course, we know in the story, what did the people do? Just like all the way back to Adam and Eve, they rebelled something that was no surprise to God and that he had foreseen and had planned. They represent, they didn't, excuse me, they didn't represent God's wisdom and righteousness in their corporate life, but they mimicked the folly and idolatry of the nations instead. So instead of establishing righteousness and justice, which is what they were supposed to do, Injustice and unrighteousness were established through them, and the kingdom project stalled out. So God now introduces the final stage of the progression of his covenant dealings with his people, a new covenant that would establish a truly just and righteous kingdom. And we see teasers of this right in the prophets. They start to point forward to this new covenant that God's going to make with his people. So turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. So we're just slowly, right? We're slowly building this framework of God's kingdom through the covenant throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. You can also see this in Isaiah 53 and 55 and in Ezekiel 36, 16 to 38. But this is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is Yahweh's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. Yahweh's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Yahweh's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is Yahweh's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. really powerful over and over. This is Yahweh's declaration. This is Yahweh's declaration. This is the covenant that I will make, says God. And notice the terms of this covenant. Gives them new, obedient, and free natures. I will put my law within them. It establishes a community of people, but ruled by one ruler. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Reestablishing that. <coughs> Excuse me. 
It is a kingdom that destroys all the natural hierarchies of humankind. No classes or castes or ethnic rivalries. Verse 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, know the Lord. In other words, no one has more access to the truth than the others and is therefore fit to rule over others, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And the covenant establishes this body on the foundation of judicial pardon and reconciliation. I will forgive their iniquity. So this is, there's this relationship now that we're moving from the Mosaic to the new covenant. It's not about moving from corporate to individual or from obedience required to no obedience required, right? There's still obedience and there's still individual and corporate aspects of this but it's about moving from a kingdom life dependent on their own strength to a covenant which they had to obey where God is raising the stakes and the role of his spirit is going to be greater, I think. I think that's a key difference between this new covenant and the previous covenants. One might say that in the old covenant, God commands, while in the new covenant, God fulfills. And that's not like an either-or, right? Obviously, both of those are inherent in each of them. I think it's more just what, where's the emphasis lie um, seems to me to be true. As we move on in the story, we see fulfillment in Jesus. But we want to see who Jesus is in respect to these covenants and, and how is he fulfilling. If there is fulfillment in Jesus, how is Jesus the fulfillment of these covenants? If we see, if we understand this part of the story and, and we're seeking God's rule over God's people in God's place. Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Arguably the most Jewish of the biographies of Jesus. Matthew 1, 1. Where we read, we read an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, um, can we get a little nerdy and, and talk about Greek language here? So Matthew wrote these words in Greek, and in Greek, the first two words are biblos geneseos. So what does biblos sound like? If you were to transliterate, what's biblos sound like? <laughs> it sounds like bibble, right? <laughs> Very good, Andrea. <laughs> it does sound like bibble, Bible or book. And what does genesoes sound like? Genesis. So an account of the beginnings an account of the generations, or a book of genealogy. Now, if you recall on your hand, it was right there in your handout on, I think, page two, is it on page two of your handout, where we began to look at all of this. We read in Genesis 5.1, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. In the Septuagint, the first two words, Biblos, Geneseos, the book of beginnings, the generations, the genealogy, so that we then have the name of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. 
which I think Matthew is trying to make a very clear connection for us in the enterprise he is about to undertake and the story he is about to tell. He is saying, so this story is a book of the genesis of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And I am going to show you how he is connected to these men through whom God made covenants. These men who were milestones along the progressive covenantal dealings of God with his people, all leading up now to the long-awaited Messiah who will rescue God's people and bring about the long-awaited kingdom. So let me show you how this came about. And then he's going to unpack that in these five major movements through a book that says more often than any other of the biographies of Jesus, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. And then he gives the readers all the dots that connect Jesus into the storyline, which would have been absolutely huge for a Jewish audience. Who is Jesus? He is the son of David. And who else is he the son of? The son of Abraham. And that's not all that Matthew is going to reveal and connect because Matthew is going to do biblical theology for us right before our eyes. Go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So he got up, Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. So who is Jesus now? He is the new Israel. And who was the very first son that was exiled from God's presence and rule in the place that he was intended to be because of disobedience to the covenant made with him? Adam. And so, as Paul's going to make clear in Romans 5, doing a bit of biblical theology himself, Jesus is the new and better Adam along with the new and better Israel as the new and better son who will come up out of Egypt and then do what? Matthew chapter 3, he will go through waters, just as Israel did. And then Matthew chapter 4, he will go out into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. To do what in the wilderness for 40 days? To be tested and tried. And if you read in the Old Testament of the journey of Israel through the wilderness, what does it say over and over again? God did this to test them. But of course, Jesus does what neither Adam nor Israel could do. They resist Satan. He resists Satan and he obeys. And then if we keep reading, we get to Matthew chapter 5. What does Jesus do? He goes up on a mountain and gives them a code for how they should live their lives and follow God. What does that sound like? Sounds like Moses going up on a mountain giving a code for how people should live. And then Jesus makes that connection clear in Matthew, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, which is, in fact, I think, hearkening back to something Moses writes in Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything that I command him, and I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name, and if you're thinking that's a silly connection, read Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26, where Peter confirms exactly that connection, doing biblical theology himself, seeing that's a unified story that leads to Jesus, by making those connections in a proclamation of the good news in Solomon's colonnade. God's rule being made perfectly manifest through the perfect human king, Jesus, 
who came as the new Adam, the seed of Abraham, the true Israel, the greater David, to both fulfill everything they pointed toward, but also to do perfectly everything they could not do. Jesus is the rule of God, and he is the kingdom of God. Come. And he says, the kingdom, he says over and over in Matthew, he's saying the kingdom of heaven, which for Matthew is synonymous with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom, it's here. I'm here. I'm the kingdom. I'm the fulfillment of all of the covenants and all of the promises. But of course, Jesus did more than establish God's kingdom in his own person. Might it be said that he gave a covenant? Turn to Matthew chapter 26. I did not. <laughs> I know. I thought I felt like that was pretty awesome this week. That that's yeah. <laughs> Matthew twenty six, verse twenty six and following. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. Where? In my father's kingdom. After singing the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So the whole point of our study tonight was kingdom through covenant. And Jesus here is establishing his kingdom in the lives of a people through the new covenant in his blood. God's people in the age, in this age now, right? So we're, we're living between two ages, not two worlds, it's so important to understand, y'all. We're, we're not going to another world. This, this is the world that we're going to dwell in when Jesus comes back to this world. So we're living in an age that is overlapping with another age. And that's the confusion and the tension is that the kingdom of God has come, but it hasn't come fully. This is what they misread all through the prophets. But that is going to be this one action of God to fully establish his kingdom but we're living in this overlap of ages, the kingdom not being fully consummated, which it will be when Jesus comes back. But he is establishing now that kingdom through God's people who believe in this king and receive the benefits of our king's rule, the Messiah's rule, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we pray for what to come? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. God's people, Christ's rule in a place. Paul says in Galatians 6.16 that we are the Israel of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race. A new Adam, Romans 5. Two humanities. The Adamic humanity and the new Adam humanity, the Christ humanity. 
We are a royal priesthood, sons ruling on God's behalf. We are a holy nation, a new Israel, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see how there's this progression? Peter's willing to take all that same language that God had spoken of Israel in Exodus and apply it to us under Jesus. As we have seen, Paul argues in Romans 4 that Abraham is our father and we are thus in the long line of humans to enter into the promises of God through faith, making us new Adam, sons and daughters, new Israel, Abrahamic children of promise who live under the rule of the forever king. A church of Jesus, Messiah, made up of God's people under God's rule in God's Place, a place that will one day be fully restored as a new heaven and a new earth. Hebrews saying that if the promises had been fulfilled and there was and the rest had been complete, would there still be a rest to enter into? Rhetorical question, of course, we still we have not yet entered into that rest. We are exiles, we are sojourners under the rule of God, waiting to enter into <laughs> a promised land a new heavens and a new earth. Kingdoms, kingdom through covenant. And read in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 if you want to see what that looks like, fully fulfilled. Here endeth the lesson. <laughs> Questions, comments, challenges, rebukes. Brian. That's such a that's such a difficult introduction, Brian. <laughs> yes. And why have you thought of it as odd? What am I missing? Oh, right. Yeah, and my understanding of studying that passage is that it is the way. So I, I don't know how to, how to make that link from, I don't know the cultural issues with, um, like you're saying, like a Roman idea of adoption or a Jewish conception of how that works. All I, all I can do is just, so I, I don't know that, the, I'll, I'll look that up. That's really interesting. I'm not sure what the, the historical cultural context would be there. What I, what I have when I've read and studied that passage in the past is that there is a, that there is a purpose there of God in a lineage connection. Like I think we all understand, you know, he was of the house and lineage of David. So there is, there is a conception in, in whatever is going on there from a Jewish perspective that it does establish Jesus as coming from the lineage of David, um, which we know that's Joseph's lineage because of how he had to report in the census and all the rest of the story. So, um, so 
Yeah, but I think, and, and maybe you know this, Brian, or, or someone else does, I, I think it is, it is the man's line, right, that establishes the line in, in Jewish culture. So that, that may be true, but it's probably unimportant to the question that I think you are asking on, or, or the observation that you're making. Yeah. I think it is it would be a Jewish tradition to have this the man's line. Right. Yeah, I it seems to me that for the intents and purposes of God in the way that he's orchestrating the story, it doesn't seem that there's this conception that he's not, like not biologically, but for all intents and purposes he is yeah. his son. Right, right, yeah. But that's a, that's a really intriguing, I don't know that I've thought or looked at, I don't recall ever looking at that before, so that I'm going to study that further. Yeah, that's a whole nother. (laughs) I did some reading on that. uh, What was it like? This is a few weeks back. I can't even remember why why I was reading on that, and I got into quite a morass of scholarly debate around. Right. And if you compare what it's taught in Acts 2 versus versus what it's taught in the Masoretic text versus what's taught by the Josephus and the Constitutes, um, there's a difference of over a thousand years um, in what it means in that sense. And I think it's especially kind of interesting um, with that thing that you're you're talking about Abraham and setting up this call in that covenant. God's declaration. But I mean, there's, but you know, like the Sunday book that I talked to you about before, the Second Joshua and First Samuel, um, those books are if you want more information, consult, for example, the Book of Matthew. And if you actually look in the Book of Matthew, it's very interesting about Abraham's history because he was actually raised in the same house and in the same Noah before Noah died. That has a very long. Yeah, I don't know it if is. it's true. I don't know if the person who gave that to me knew what he was talking right, about. Right, right. Yeah. And Abraham coming about actually kind of in a different way reflects how Moses 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 happened to be the person Abraham was dating, but in Nimrod. But anyway, so it's a long history. That's 
Right, yeah. I've seen some of this, and frankly, I start to get a little bit confused by, there's so many different scholarly opinions around those timelines and how you look at the genealogies, and it's... <laughs> nice. <laughs> Applied 2023 to ancient timelines. It's a hypothesis. Yeah. 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 Well, and I've been in some recent reading, I've been doing trying to learn more about the historical context there. There's the more I read about that, the more I realize the differences between how we think about things, um, specifically how we think about history and how we talk about history and how we report history is very different than how history was talked about in that time. It's not, it's not meant to be, N.T. Wright talks about this, she'll say it's not meant to be, um, what we're getting in the stories isn't meant to be like this reproduction of a camera that's filming something exactly, and now I'm gonna tell you like a verbal representation of what you would see if I had filmed this exactly so that you, that you see it, right? Like I'm giving you this all history by, well, and all history by its nature is somewhat interpretive. And so, and I think Wright makes some good points that, that we can get, because um, maybe what some of you are thinking right now is like, well, then how can I even trust the Bible then if, if there's these differences and like how, well, we have to be careful not to, not to be anachronistic, which is like placing our ideas and our understandings on an ancient text and how they understood when they were writing that. And, and again, and I'm just telling you this, I'm a little, I'm on some thin ice here. I'm being very honest with you. Like I'm, the older I get, the more I'm trying to understand history better. Like Brian's able to quote some of these. I've not read the book of Yasher, so I, I haven't done that kind of research. And so I'm, I'm just starting to try and learn, like, what, what, does, what does my Western thinking, what does Enlightenment thinking, how does that affect how I'm reading a text that was written far before those conceptions of the way that you look at history, the way you report things. And, and I, think that's, I think that's really, I think that, you know, reading Wright and some others recently, that that's it's really important. Um, and that I don't have to, like, my confidence therefore isn't shaken in the veracity and the truth of the scriptures. Um, even though some of those things, the way that they're talked about might be slightly different or 
whatever, you know, getting into genealogies and comparisons and timelines and, and how numbers are rounded and certain reports of how many soldiers were killed, right? I mean, these are things in the Old Testament that, that atheists will bring up. And usually I'm like, oh no, <laughs> what is, are the scriptures wrong? And like, and then you start to read historians who know what they're doing better than me. And it helps me see, okay, that, that's not the way that they reported things. Um, so yeah, in, in process. That's why I always say this is my current understanding of the text. <laughs> so, all right. Well, it's 725. Thank you. You've all been very attentive. Thanks for the good questions. Have a wonderful evening, and we'll see you on Sunday, I hope, or next Wednesday or both.